Good morning and welcome to worship at uh, Kern uh, Church. My name is Will and I'm the pastor here. It's great to be with you all. Today is a special celebration in the life of our church. It's United Women in Faith Sunday where we celebrate the work of God through the, the uh, United Women in Faith. United Women in Faith have a rich history and they continue to make an impact today. And, and I want to tell you the story of a, of a young woman named Anise who shared about how United Women in Faith really impacted her life in a powerful way. And I just want to read some of her story because I thought it was inspiring. She, she wrote, to be brutally honest, I have to admit I was a skeptic at first because growing up this organization wasn't exactly my cup of tea I thought it was a group of seasoned women who gathered and talked about things from 1869, had long drawn out meetings and talked and, and, and just spent time sewing their life away. Little did I know that attending a young woman's group called Limitless would lead to me to be a united woman and faith member for the rest of my life. She goes on to say that today I'm the mother of an eight-year-old girl a wife, a friend, a mentor, and a leader. Since the conversation that she had with United Women in Faith began, things hadn't been the same. Almost everywhere I go, I meet someone with a United Women in Faith connection, she shared. I always feel welcome, like I have a place at the table. These women have stepped into my life to continue to show me a very special group of women, bold, courageous, daring, loving women opened their hearts to me. Someone who experienced the life-changing love of God in a powerful way. And, and today, uh, Anise is also the, the president of the United Women in Faith. And, and it's just a neat story about how, how she went from skepticism to really experiencing wholeness and mission and love through this, through this organization. Lord, all we have is yours. All we have belongs to you. May each one who worships you this day fill your presence. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Dear ones, one of the, the first grammar rules that I remember learning, now you come to church and you learn about grammar, but maybe this sticks in your mind too. One of the first grammar rules that I remember learning as a young person is that you should never use a double negative in a sentence. I don't know if this, this sticks. I see some nods, so maybe, you know, you should never write a sentence or speak a sentence that includes two negatives. Now, of course, in math, the common phrase is that, was it, two negatives make a positive. So if you try to subtract a negative number from a, if you try to subtract a negative number, you end up adding a positive number. And I'm not really sure how all that works. But when it comes to grammar, there's a little bit more nuance in the equation. Sometimes... I'm a southerner, so I can say this, I think. Sometimes, especially in the South, a double negative can be used to create what we might call a super negative. So it's not like double negatives cancel each other out in language all the time, especially in the South. You know, sometimes two negatives make like a super negative, a more intense negative. Like, I ain't never seen... Da, 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 da. I ain't never seen a pig fly. That doesn't mean that you actually have seen a pig fly. It means that you ain't never seen one. It is so ridiculous that you can't even imagine it happening. But then there are some times when, when double negatives are used, and they're used not in this sense to make a super negative, but they are used to kind of cancel each other out. 
For example, someone might ask you, well, you know, how are you doing? Well, you know, I, I'm, not, I'm not unhappy. Now, now, saying I'm not unhappy, you know, that doesn't, it's not a ringing endorsement for your happiness and your state of mind, right? It doesn't mean that, that you, it doesn't have the same meaning as saying I am happy or I am miserable. It's not that you're, 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 you're super happy. It's not that you're super unhappy. It's just kind of like this, this middle range that, that, that we might use or where things just, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to, to kind of pin down to use the double negative in that sense, that you're just kind of okay. And I have to be honest with you, I've always kind of liked double negatives in this regard because they help express a, a sense of emotion that, that I, I think that is, 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 is helpful, or at least in my own mind. And, and I kind of have always gotten upset when I'm told, like, Microsoft Word now, I don't have teachers that tell me this, but Microsoft Word will give me, you know, don't use this sentence structure, and, and I, I get upset about this. I mean, what if Tom Jones saying it's, it's just usual to be loved by anyone? It's just usual to have fun with anyone. Or, or what if instead of I can't get no satisfaction, it's I get satisfaction, I get satisfaction indeed or or what if instead of ain't no mountain high enough ain't no valley low enough ain't no river wide enough marvin gay saying there is not a valley or there is not a mountain too high there is not a valley too low there is not a river too wide to keep me from getting to you and in a and in a time when when like pop culture from the 80s and 90s is is, is like really popular right now what what if there's something strange in the neighborhood who are you going to call ghostbusters you know, the, the, the young, one of the youngest people in the room knows who you're going to call. And, and, and he never watched the movie of the, like when they first came out. But, but who are you going to call Ghostbusters? But instead of singing, I ain't afraid of no ghost, it's I am afraid of ghosts. And I guess we really can't call the Ghostbusters. And maybe, maybe more relevant for some of you, what if the king himself was banned from using double negatives? You're just a hound dog. You're just a hound dog. You, you catch rabbits and you're a friend of mine. If you ask me, sometimes negatives are important. And if you were with us last week, we started a new message series about, about rules in life that help us get connected with God, about, about, about rules in life that, that can help us really, really live out a life of faith. And we began by looking at a negative. And today is the second week of this message series, Three General Rules for Living a Faithful Life. And, and the first rule last week was, was a simple rule, a negative rule, but it was to do no harm. And this first negative rule is a negative rule in the sense that, that it's something you're not supposed to do. You're not supposed to harm people. You're not supposed to live a life that harms others. And it kind of serves as a filter of sorts for your heart and for your mind. And so before you manifest anything out in the world, you just run it by. Is this going to harm someone? Is this going to harm me? Is this going to harm someone else? And, and, and if the answer is yes, then, you know, probably you shouldn't do it. But if the answer is no, then you're probably pretty safe of, of living, living out this way. And as much as I do enjoy negative statements, and I, I think that art and music especially are enhanced by the off-malign double negative, negatives, you know, they only can get you so far. 
They can only get you so far. Uh, This rule of do no harm can't tell you what to do. It just tells you what not to do. Do no harm is, is great on its own, but the problem is just do no harm just stops there. It doesn't give you any positive direction in life. It gives you no instruction on what to actually do. And so that's where today's rule comes from. To, to do good. Today's the second rule in three general rules for living a faithful life is to do good. If you were with us last week, you might recall that, that these general rules were written by the, the founder of the Methodist movement, a guy by the name of, of John Wesley way back in the 1700s, and he was concerned about people living faithful lives. He, he said that, that if those were going to, if, if people were going to follow after the way of Jesus, not only should this just be something happening in their hearts and in their minds, but it should be something happening with their whole selves, their whole bodies, in, in their commerce with other people, in their relationships with other people, in their living as members of society. And in fact, he wrote that all who seek to follow Jesus should show evidence of this, evidence of this desire to follow Jesus by first doing no harm, and secondly, just to kind of share the, the language that he wrote, by doing good. By being in every kind merciful after their power as they have opportunity. Doing good of every possible sort and as far as possible. Now, if you got that, that's great. But I think the language is a little dated and and, and it makes it a little bit difficult to understand because we don't talk like that too often. We we often prefer sentences that are more direct and and sentences that have a, a more simple sentence construction. And so this language is a little bit dated, but maybe you could say you should live out your life by doing good, all possible kinds of good, at every chance you get, and as much as possible. By doing good at all possible kinds of good, at at every chance you get, as much as possible. And when I think about doing good as a rule for living a faithful life, I think about Jesus. I mean, the, the, the early church in the book of Acts tells us that, that Jesus traveled around doing good and healing everyone, everyone who was oppressed by the devil because God was with him. So, so the early church, the people who were first followers of Jesus, said Jesus was one who patterned living a good life. Jesus was one who went out and did good to bless other people. And, and so as someone who traveled around doing good, Jesus has a lot to teach us, a lot to teach us and his followers, or as his followers, about doing good. So just prior to Jesus' arrest and death, I mean, that's what happened to Jesus. He, he went on this world-changing ministry. He was killed for it. And, and then death was not final in his life. And he, he rose from the grave in a powerful way, showing that, that death is not the end. You know, it, Jesus, before he was arrested, before he would meet this, this final end, he was sitting on the Mount of Olives. Now, if, if you've never been to the Holy Land, you, you perhaps don't have an idea of what the Mount of Olives is, but it's really not a big mountain. It's just kind of a ridge that overlooks a city. I, I'm from Chattanooga, and so we have like Missionary Ridge. We call it the Ridge Cut. It, it runs straight through, straight through dividing like suburbs and whatnot from downtown Chattanooga, and you never want to get caught on the Ridge Cut in, in, in like rush hour traffic or really any time during the day because you'll just be there forever. But, but Jesus is kind of like sitting on top of this ridge looking down over the city. And, and what had happened in his life is he had just basically been kicked out of Jerusalem. 
And he knew that the next time he walked to Jerusalem was going to be his last time. This is when he cries over Jerusalem, lamenting the pain that is there. And so his closest followers, I don't know if they know what's going on, but Jesus is obviously in a tender spot. And his closest followers walk up to him and say, hey, teach us. They begin to have a conversation with them, and Jesus begins to teach them. This is really the last time Jesus will teach them. And, and, and Matthew tells us, tells us what's happening here in about Matthew chapter 24. I'm going to look at Matthew chapter 25, which is one of these big teachings of Jesus. And one of the most powerful teachings that Jesus gives his disciples while they're sitting up on this ridge overlooking concerns the second rule in life. Do good. So if you have a Bible and want to follow along, be looking at Matthew chapter 25, beginning in verse 31. Here's what Jesus has to say to his followers as he's teaching them what it means to do good. Matthew chapter 25, beginning in verse 31. Now when the human one comes in his majesty and all his angels are with him, he will sit on his majestic throne. All the nations will be gathered in front of them. He will separate them from each other as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he will put the sheep on his right side and the goats he will put on his left side. Then the king will say to those on the right, come, come, you who receive good things from my father, inherit the kingdom that was prepared for you before the world began. I was hungry and you gave me food to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you gave me clothes. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. Then those who are righteous will reply to him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and, and feed you? They're confused right here. They've been told that they fed Jesus and, and clothed Jesus and, and, and gave him something to drink. And, and, and here they're like, Lord, when did we do this? When did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? Verse 38, when did we see you as a stranger and welcome you or naked and give you clothes to wear? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? Here Jesus and his disciples, Jesus gives his disciples a glimpse of the end. He's giving them a glimpse of, of, of judgment, of, of what the nation should expect when, when the culmination of time happens and God gathers God's own. And, and during this judgment, Jesus tells us that, that the king will separate the nations on the right and on the left. And to those that are on the, the right, the, the sheep, so to speak, he will give them their reward. Good things, we read, good things from the Father. Because you fed me when I was hungry. You gave me something to drink when I was thirsty. You welcomed me when I was alone, when I was a stranger. You gave me clothes when I didn't have anything but rags to wear. You, you took care of me when I was sick, and you even visited me when, when I was in prison. The king says to these, you, you're receiving good. You've done well because when I was with you, and I had a need. You provided it. You supplied, you supplied that need. Then we find that those to whom the king is talking, they, they don't remember seeing him before. They, they, they're being told that they've done this. They're being told that they fed him, but they don't remember seeing him before. They don't remember doing this good. And I don't think this is like the false modesty of, of the politician that says, you know, uh, maybe 
politicians don't have false modesty, they're just like, anyways. But um, you don't win elections by being modest. We're getting to election season, so I probably should just shut up about that. Um, it's a, I'm glad this is on. Thank you, Chuck. Thank you. That's, I'm glad it's on camera, so um, that's, that's really good. But, but they don't, they're not living in this false modesty, I don't think. I think they really, really are, are confused here. And, and I don't think they're pretending to deny their good works. And so, so then we find in verse 40 kind of the culmination here of what is said to these people who pass the test, so to speak. Then the king will reply to them, I assure you that when you've done it for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you have done it to me. Here here the king says, when you've done it for someone else who is down and out, when you've done it for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you've really done it to me, and this is what your reward is based on. Do good, all possible kinds of good, at every chance you get as much as possible. In 1869, Clementia Butler and Lois Parker, our United Women in Faith that are here today may know these names, but but these were wives of missionaries that were in India, and they made a plea to a group of eight women in Boston about the spiritual and physical needs of the women that they were working with in India. You see, the women in India at the time could not be treated by male doctors because of cultural prohibitions of men caring for women. And schooling for girls was almost non-existent at this time, and help was desperately needed. And this is what these two ladies shared to this group in Boston. And what would become a lasting legacy of of the the phrases is showing up and getting things done. The attendees at this meeting, they were moved to action. And and not only they were moved to action, they they called another meeting of more women. They wrote a constitution. I mean, they formed committees, which is sometimes what religious people do. They just form committees to, to try to put off getting things done, but they formed a committee that actually got something done, and in short order, they organized the Methodist Women's Foreign Missionary Society. I mean, that's a mouthful, but, but one of the, this is one of the predecessor organizations for the United Women in Faith and the United Methodist Women, which is just that some of y'all may know that organization by. By November of that same year, this newly formed organization had not only written a constitution, done all the committee, and elected its leaders, but they raised money and sent an educator and a doctor to go serve the people in India. The, the, the educator began a school with just six young girls that went on to become Isabella Thurnborn College. This was Asia's first women's college. The doctor Swain, the doctor who went, she, she, her medical work resulted in the first women's hospital in Asia, Asia. And both of these institutions are still active today. I mean, do good, all possible kinds of good at every chance you get as much as possible. I mean, this is a type of work that has a long history in the United Women in Faith, creating healthcare organizations to support women in struggling parts of the world. They also created schools in the United States and around the world, like the one I just mentioned, and also a, a university in Korea that to this day is one of the largest women's universities in all the world. And then just prior to the 20th century, they were one of the first organizations in the church to develop a social justice department 
And then beginning in the early part of the 20th century, they challenged the the evil increase of lynchings that were happening throughout the country. And they also welcomed immigrants at ports of call, ports of entry. I was particularly taken by a document around this same time called a Charter of Racial Policies. This was written and, and presented for the United Women in Faith at the time. And this charter affirmed a belief that the church must be a social order without racial barriers. And then it went on to discuss specific actions for battling racial injustice and advocating for inclusion at all levels of the church and in society. I mean, really a faith-filled document that called people to be better than themselves, to be better than than they, they were. Do good, all possible kinds of good at every chance you get, and as much as possible. Today, as we celebrate the legacy and the kind of the continued work of the United Women in faith, I, I draw much inspiration from their past. This is the specific work that points to the second general rule doing good, of demonstrating and living out your faith by by doing good. Of course, doing good is, is not something just to be studied. Doing good is not something just to be celebrated. Doing good is something that you you just do. You just do. In writing this original rule, John Wesley went on to lay out some concrete ways to live out this rule of doing good. Here's, Here's one thing that he wrote. To do good in people's physical life by giving food to the hungry, clothing to the naked, and by visiting or helping those who are sick and in prison. That sounds a lot like what we just read that Jesus was teaching was, of, of, of doing good, of feeding people, of giving people something to drink, of, of clothing them. But it wasn't just these physical needs that, that John Wesley would point out in doing good means. Doing good is also about people's souls and, and, and teaching them and encouraging them to share the good news of doing good with other people. And then it's not, it's not just for other people. It's not just for people that you don't yet know. It's not just for people who, who, who may be in a different community or, or look different from you or be at a different place in the world. It is also vitally important to show good, to do good to those others in your community of faith, to those that you live life with on a daily basis, to encourage them, to help them, to support them. This is similar to what Paul wrote when he was writing to to the community of faith in Ephesians. And, And he was writing to encourage them. He's a pastor and he's writing to encourage them in their faith to do good and to support one another. And in Ephesians chapter four, he wrote this, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. He's saying, do good, all possible kinds of good at every chance you get as much, as much as possible. Our first general rule is, is do no harm. And, and do no harm can best be served as kind of this internal filter to keep you from, from manifesting things in the world that shouldn't be there. But this second general rule, friends, it's not internal. This second general rule is not internal at all. The second general rule is not a rule of the mind, it's a rule of the hands. It's a rule of the hands. It's a rule of the hands. It is, Lord, may these hands 
Lord, may these hands be hands of good. May these hands be instruments of good in your world so that others may be blessed through faith in you. I want to leave you with one final encouragement and then I want to lead you in prayer. And this encouragement too comes from scripture. It too comes from a letter that was written, not this time at Paul, but a letter that was written by this guy named John in a small little book of the Bible that we know as Third John, which is really just a, a tiny little letter that, that was written. And in verse 11, John is writing to his friend Gaius, and, and he, he gives him this encouragement. Dear friend, don't imitate what is bad, but what is good. Whoever practices what is good belongs God. Whoever practices what, has, what is bad has not seen God. Dear friend, don't imitate what is bad, but imitate what is good. Whatever practices are good come from God. Whoever practices and, and lives out this rule of do good, do good belongs to God. So dear friends, do good. All possible kinds of good at every chance you get and as much as possible. This time, I want to invite you to pray with me. And, and this is a prayer that I'm going to say a line. And I just invite you to respond the same line as well. It's not going to be on the screen, so you can just close your eyes or, or get in a comfortable position and ask the Lord to, to help you do good. Let's pray now together. Dear God, dear God, here, that's when you all pray, like, out loud. It's okay, let's try this again. Dear, dear God, Jesus went around doing good. Doing good. Help me to imitate you. Help me to imitate you. Make these hands be an instrument for good. Make these hands be an instrument for good. All possible kinds of good. All possible kinds of good. At every chance I get. Every chance I get. As much as possible. Amen. And if you're like me and need a simple form to, to take you through your day, just hold out your hands. I invite you to hold out your hands. and Look at your hands and, and prayerfully repeat, just do good. Do good. I mean, what a simple thing we can teach the youngest and the oldest, but to use these hands as instruments for God's good. Amen. Dear ones, leave with the blessing of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Go out and receive the goodness of God and do good as much as possible wherever you can. Go with this blessing. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you want to reach out to Kern Memorial United Methodist Church or see entire services, you can visit our YouTube channel, Kern Memorial United Methodist Church, and remember to like and subscribe for updates. You can also visit us on our Facebook page at Kern Memorial United Methodist Church. Thanks and have a blessed day.